Thank you. You can be seated. Please turn with me back to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, there are 31 verses there that we're going to move through today. So let's, let's begin, first of all, by, I'll, I'll read it. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So that he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign, if they will not believe that these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, a Levite, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in, in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff in which you will do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let us go back to my brothers in Egypt and to see whether they are still alive. And 
Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and, and had them ride on the donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. So Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you've refused to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And at the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let them alone and it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord in which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, it's with believing hearts this morning that Christ Community Church has gathered to come and to worship you. We pray, Lord, that you'll strengthen your people in your word, build us in the faith, and we pray for these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In Christianity, you may have come across some pithy statements that are intended to motivate you. Things like, God will not give you more than you can handle. Or God helps those who help themselves. Or, or God sees the potential in you. That's why He's pursuing you. As we continue to look this morning at the beginning part of chapter 4, Pastor Alex took us, through the burning bush experience. And uh, this burning bush experience moves through chapter 4, through uh, verse 17, and then we'll proceed to the end of the chapter. Um, as you're moving through the book of Exodus itself, Exodus begins to explore and give us more of the idea that, that God is holy. A lot more so than the book of, of Genesis, to where ultimately when we uh, take our final sermon on 
Exodus chapter 20, where there's the giving of the command of the law, the Ten Commandments. And we know subsequent to that, that Moses will write about how to interpret uh, God's laws. We know from the Apostle Paul that, that the law is holy and righteous and, and good, and it's important that the law be preached. It's important for us as the church that the law be preached, so we magnify and glorify Jesus who saved us and the hope and the beauty of the gospel. It's needful that the law be preached and that God is holy and that we are sinful so that man can identify his need of the gospel and once again, the, the glory of the gospel in Christ himself um, is expounded upon. It's made, it's made greater. And so as we move through this text this morning, um, Moses reveals some things about himself that I would say all of us um, can identify with. I think where we, where we move through this today, he'll talk about his, his inability. He'll talk about his inadequacy. And he'll talk about his ineffectiveness. And I think he was sincere when he was saying those things. And yet, Yahweh, as he does each of these, gives Moses' assurances. There's assurance that's given by Yahweh on every step. He's going to tell them the actions Yahweh does of Pharaoh. He does that for Moses' assurance. He will tell him of the actions of Aaron. Once again, to give Moses assurance. He then will tell them of the actions of the elders and how they will respond. And of course, we know that all of these things um, were so that God's people would believe. And I think one of the things that we want to bear in mind, matter of fact, let's hold your spot in Exodus chapter 4. I want you to go back to um, our scripture reading this morning, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because this is a lengthy chapter, it, I want to just give you this at the beginning for um, our own sake. Because I think that all of us, as I said, can identify with Moses. And, and I, th I think, you know, you can begin to self-examine yourself and begin to see your own ability or your own potential effectiveness and your own adequacy. And we, we lose sight of what we really should be focused upon in, in ministry. That is, who Jesus is. What Jesus did. And really, you think about God's grace and the power of the gospel itself, how it's the power of the gospel that has transformed each of our lives that, that know Jesus. And it really is still the greatest miracle ever. And there's a lot of great miracles that we're going to see. Some of them are just small miracles like manna, and some of them we're going to come across in this like you know, the, the parting of the Red Sea. And I think it's really important as we look at all of this and as you consider your own life 
that we never lose sight of that. We never lose sight of the fact of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and the power of the gospel that transformed us. It's what you're building your life on and it's who we proclaim to people so that they can be transformed. And in simplicity, and I guess I would entitle the message this way, it's to trust and obey. There was a hymn that was sung when I was a kid, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I think that's what Paul is actually saying when he closes here. This is a, such a great uh, text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I just again want to read the end of it. But that we, we gain in its simplicity strength to trust and obey Jesus. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's because of, of course, God, God the Father, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us, everything is supplied here, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast of the Lord. And that really was a big motivation for us when some seven years ago we changed our name to Christ Community Church. We want to boast about Christ. And, you know, I've been the benefactor of hearing many of your experiences of being transformed by Christ. And all of us are here this morning just a continuing of to build our lives as God's people gather as He gave us upon the Lord's Day um, to simply trust and obey Christ and that Christ is the center of our lives. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 4. And really, when you're thinking about your life, and I think about my life and the home that I was raised in, this becomes the centerpiece. This some hour and a half that we spend together means everything. It means how we're going to live, how we're going to function day to, way, uh, day, to day. It's the life-giving truth of the gospel that should drive us and motiv motivate us because God has given us assurances inside this gospel. And they're important assurances. Now, again, when we read this text as we move through this, I think what I'm going to kind of do this morning is, is give you uh, Jesus along the way. We certainly want to interpret the passage as to how it was written and the Hebrews, the Jews would have understood what was written. There's some things that we'll have to wrestle with, but what Moses wrote here would have been very clear for them. Even in the giving of the signs, it would have been something that they would have understood. It wouldn't have been hard to comprehend for them. And, and so we're going to go along with this and we're certainly going to look at the text in light of what was transpiring at the time. But of course, um, we're looking at this as the church. And that we know from the Word of God 
that Jesus himself told his disciples that all of Scripture is Christ-centered. And they take what Jesus describes to them in Luke chapter 24, and they move through the, uh, the book of Acts, and they interpret the Old Testament in light of Christ, because all of Scripture is Christ-centered. The first aspect in this burning bush um, that culminates what Pastor Alex began for us last week, these are really three signs of transformation. Okay? You have the staff and the serpent. You have a hand that is clean and that is leprous. You have the water and the blood. And in summation, I would say this, that Yahweh is, is showing Moses that, number one, he has the power of all the animal life, both of the beasts that are in the field and as well as uh, the fowl of the air and, of course, the fish. Yahweh has power over the animal life. That's certainly demonstrated that Moses will, by faith, um, take up the serpent that had been uh, transformed from his staff. I think the hand clean and the hand leprous, was, he was letting him know that he was under control of man. That Yahweh was under control of man himself and that man, being the creation of Yahweh, was subjected to him. And I think the whole last thing, which would have been very significant as well, the water turning into blood from, from the Nile, was proof that Yahweh had power over nature. As Pastor Alex was describing to us this morning, God is other. Okay? He is other, and everything else is creation. And all of creation is subject to its creator. And I think a part of this that we want to always bear in mind when we're either reading this or you're reading any part of the Old Testament, or the New Testament as well, but particularly the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is the promise, the New Testament becomes the fulfillment of Christ, is that the signs were not an end in themselves, but the signs that are given are pointing to something in the future. When Moses is before here, before uh, Pharaoh, we want to be mindful that Moses thought he was God. He was the ruler of the most powerful nation at the time, which was Egypt, and he thought he was a godlike king. And so here who comes, as we read from uh, the chapter here this morning, because all of the people were dead now that knew that Moses had killed the Egyptian, here comes this this dirty shepherd with a staff. And there's no doubt in my mind, as he, as he looked at Moses, he thought, who in the world does this guy think he is? That he, in his staff, can take on my scepter. I'm the most powerful being in the universe. And so these, these things that are described here, um, that, that, that happens on the burning bush, um, Yahweh is showing how he is going to transform the circumstance that Moses is in and what 
the Israelites in, God's people, and He is at this moment going to save them from the bondage that they're, they're stuck in. The staff, as we'll move through this this morning and in the weeks to come, reflect a type of authority and the power of God. We know as we think about the staff from Psalm chapter 23, we think of the Word of God, right? The Word of God is our authority. The Word of God is our power. We believe here at Christ Community Church that the Word of God is inspired of God, and that, that's why it's, it's needful that we preach through it verse by verse. Because it's God's Word. And so we shouldn't pick and choose what we want to do. And, and there's difficult passages. You know, some of the ones that we'll even cross a little bit for people this morning. The staff represented the authority and the, the power of God. The serpent, uh, of course, represented uh, Egypt. And, and I really think more than likely, I know the text doesn't say this, but more than likely it was probably a cobra. Because in, in all archaeology uh, findings that come from Egypt, they have cobra, and the cobra was kind of the insignia of the nation Egypt. And certainly, you know, it, I, I certainly believe it was poisonous because when, when Moses first does it, he blows dodge. He, he runs. And I don't blame him. I, you know, I hate snakes. But I want you to catch this here. He does trust Yahweh because who in the world is going to grab a snake by the tail? You grab a snake by the tail and it's biting you. you everybody tries to capture a snake by its head. And so once he gets his wits back, having uh, you know, been scared the daylights out of him, he trusts Yahweh and he picks it. And, and of course, I think that's what's being represented here. And certainly we know all the way back to the garden, there's only one of two races. There's only one of two kingdoms. There are the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I think the whole hand clean here in this for Moses is he was letting him know that I'm going to be in control of Pharaoh. And I think because to a certain degree, Moses is going to be a little fearful. This is the most powerful nation in the universe. They have held God's people in bondage for over 400 years. And Yahweh is letting um, um, certainly Moses know that he was in control of Pharaoh. And the last thing about this water being turned to blood, I think probably is significant because if you read anything about the nation Egypt at this time. The, the, the Nile would basically, from the richness of the water, had a, about 30 feet deep of, of mud. And they would use that mud, and that mud fueled the building of the Egyptian empire. Um, and, and it was... Uh, you know, a very resourceful thing that led them to uh, their power, the richness of their soil, and all the various, uh, the, the fish life that was there and the fowl life there. It was an integral part to the building of the Egyptian 
empire. And I think here, what Yahweh is letting Moses know is I'm going to bring this thing to naught. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy Pharaoh. And so there's a great deal of assurances that, um, of course, Yahweh is giving uh, to Moses. And we know when we move through the rest of this book, as, as we encounter the ten plagues, each of those plagues will represent a different God that was worshipped in, in Egypt. And that Egypt itself was a pluralistic worshipping group um, of various deities. Yahweh, of course, was letting Moses know he was going to save his people. And most assuredly, we need to know that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true king who is the king of the nations. Who all who belong to Jesus have been made a part of his glorious eternal kingdom. Now before we move past that though, we consider the three excuses that Moses gives here, right? In verse 1, he looks at Yahweh and says, man, they, they, they will not believe. In verse 10, he looks at Yahweh and says, I am not eloquent. And in verse 13, he's, he's exhausted by his own excuses and he says, Yahweh, would you please send somebody else? Just, just please send somebody else. And I, and I, before we just kind of, you know, kind of tossed Moses aside, I think what's happening here is, is legit. I really do. I think there's a degree of Moses being fearful. We can come across that, can't we? Being fearful of things. And I think one of the other things that he talks about this seeming speech impediment, um, I think Moses had a, a stuttering problem. Um, my dad had a stuttering problem. Um, the, in the McGuire family, I had a severe stuttering more problem when I was younger. And so I kind of identified, you know, I get it. You want to get in front of the most powerful man in the universe and he's going to take him on and maybe he doesn't feel like he can represent Yahweh well. But yet nonetheless, what Yahweh's telling him to do just is what Christ is telling us to do. Trust and obey in simplicity. God's not worried about your ability. God's not worried about your adequacy. God's not worried about your effectiveness. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to sharpen ourselves and make ourselves well. But rather, God is pleased when we trust Him and that we obey Him in simplicity. To underscore this to Moses, look at verse 5. Look what he says. And he tells him that they may believe the Lord the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Yahweh again is giving him promises that he will rest in him. And, it, and again, Moses knows the divine story. He's going to author the first five books of the Pentateuch. He knows the story of what was promised to Abraham. When exactly he gets this, I don't have any doubt that as this is transpiring, Yahweh has communicated 
The time for the people to come out of bondage is now, and I, Yahweh, am going to use you, Moses. But when we look here in, in the Lord's response, of course, he becomes angry, yet in his anger, he extends to him kindness. He assures him that his promises are, are, are going to come to pass, that he would rest in those things, and that these things that are described in the burning bush experience, look down to verse 31, is for this sake, and the people believed, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but that was the purposes of the sign. As we looked at last week, Yahweh, the great I Am, keeps covenant. God is faithful to His promise. Along with Moses' fear, and I think what was probably a stuttering problem, it's pretty evident the guy's stubborn. He's a stubborn individual. Probably all of us are guilty of that in varied degrees. Jesus, though, for us, appears here. He is the true king. He is the one who is delivering us from the seed of the serpent. That's who we belong to. We no longer belong to the seed of the serpent. We belong to the seed of the woman. And God's promises to that group of people, the church, is assured. We're to rest in those promises. You know what leprosy represents in Scripture. It's a, it's a representation of sin. That Jesus, the true King, is the one who cleanses us from our sin. And He is the one, ultimately, who will conquer the serpent king, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when He defeats all of His enemies. God is saving His people. And, of course, He conquers Egypt to their own bloodshed, Jesus will shed his blood to make us a part of his kingdom. It's at this point when you begin to transition uh, in the book of Exodus at chapter 4, these last 13 verses or so, from verse 18 through verse 31, as you're reading through them, okay, I just want to share a few things about them as, as we start through this. It can feel disjointed. Um, they can somewhat feel a little, I think, disconnected. In the various authors that I read from, some even debate whether it's in chronological order. That's what they question. But before we dive into this, again, I want to make this clear for us. It wouldn't have been unclear to the Hebrews and the Jews. What they were hearing and what was done was done with great clarity. And so it's now with that that we're going to begin to wade through this. And there's basically four things here that I want to walk through. Okay, the first is uh, for us to let us know that Jesus is, is, the, is the Word. He's the true Word. Of course, we know from John chapter 1, uh, Jesus is the author of the Word. When you look at verses 18 through 20, you know, Moses has been serving Jethro or rule, 
both of his names. Um, he's been faithfully serving him for 40 years, you know, somewhere on the backside of Midian as, as a lowly shepherd. It's a difficult life. It's a, it's a very dirty life. And it's to this time, having gone through the burning bush experience, he goes to Jethro. He doesn't just run off. And he makes a request at this time to return to Egypt so that he would check on his, on his brothers. Once again, as I've just mentioned, he, think about this now. He served Jethro faithfully for 40 years. Jethro is clearly impressed by Moses. He gives him his daughter Zipporah. And so there's a relationship that's been established that Moses carries a good reputation. He carries a good reputation. Once again, look at verse 19. Yahweh gives Moses assurance. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. There's no question. That's not difficult to understand. Moses probably would have thought about that. Once again, Yahweh is giving him assurance. And so Moses here packs up his entire family. And here's what I thought was interesting about this. Look at verse 20. Now Moses' staff is called the staff of God. Now clearly, we get that for us because Jesus is the true word. He's the true word. Our assurances, our promises come by the word of God. Our knowledge of who God is, our power, our authority come from the scriptures. Because Jesus is the true word. He is the one who gives us his assurances and his promises according to his word. Moses now, again, he packs up all his family. And I think this is a good teaching point for all of us who are dads, who are wannabe dads. Dads, husbands, should lead their families well according to the promises of Scripture. We should center our lives. We should live our lives foundationally upon Jesus and upon the promises of the Word of God. Order your life, men, in light of Christ. Love your wife like Christ loves the church. Point your children to Jesus. Because big picture, there's nothing else that matters. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to go about and going to have good careers and, and pursue those things. Those things are okay. God values work. But everything that you do should be in light of who you are in Christ to love your bride and to love your children and point them to Jesus. Because really it's true. In the end, nothing else is going to matter. So, like the Beverly Hillbillies, he loads up the truck. And there they go. They're headed off to Egypt. Again, I'm wading through this as if it is chronological. I, I could never tell you whether it is or not. And even true, 
you know, the most scholarly of individuals can't know for sure. We just know that this is how God put his word together. But the next section here is verse 21 through 23. And I will tell you this, there's no question in my mind that there's a great deal of pastors that would avoid this section. But we can't do that. Because we're subjected to the author. And we'll all give an account. But follow along with this in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. We know what those are. Notice this with me. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your son. And of course, that's a prophetic statement because it's going to hold true. It's going to hold true. Yahweh says here, though, let's deal with the elephant that's in the room. I will harden his heart. I, Yahweh, will harden his heart. Now, the word harden is used 19 times in the text that Pastor and Alex and I are going to go through. Okay, I just want to name them, not all the verses. But we start here where it says Yahweh will harden his heart. It's mentioned in chapter 7, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 14. It is 19 times it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, first and foremost by Yahweh, and then Pharaoh himself will harden his own heart. And if I remember right, I think it's twice said of Yahweh here at the beginning. And once again, I think he's giving him assurances, Moses, because to one degree or another, he's probably wondering his response. God is, hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And once again, we're going to walk through this. There's going to be a lot of said about it. I want to say this just at, at the onset of it. It amazes me how people won't let God be God. God is God. God is other. And we are His, of course, creation. Pharaoh's hardening here, at least in part, leads to Moses' perseverance. Okay? We believe in the perseverance of the saints. I love what R.C. Sproul said about that. It is really not the perseverance of the saints. It is God persevering in the saints. So that in the end, just as our dear sister Renee had, she profoundly professed faith in Jesus to the end. God persevering in her. But perhaps God did this, perhaps Yahweh did this, at least in part, because Moses would get a little fearful. After three plagues, now what's next? And he wants to run off. But let's be clear about this, because we want to let God be God. It is God who is orchestrating these events, in part, to strengthen Moses, 
Because Yahweh could have reduced him like that. He didn't need ten plagues. He didn't need any of this. But listen to these words found in Romans chapter 9, verse 17 and 18, as the Apostle Paul will recall this. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so it is this morning in Sterling Heights in 2020. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Why? In part here, for God's glory and salvation of his people. Because Jesus is the true sovereign. Now, before we move on with this, I just want to say this. And again, we're going, to, we're going to get into this quite a bit. Pastor Alex and I both will. But we obviously want to say something to this now. Because we do want to let God be God. God's sovereignty in Scripture never negates human responsibility. Now that might be hard for some of us to comprehend, but it's nonetheless true. And according to Romans chapter 1, we will all give an account on the last and final day of judgment so that no human being standing before Christ will have an excuse for their rejection of Him or for the salvation that they enjoy, God's grace having enabled them to believe. Okay? Jesus truly is the true sovereign. Pharaoh thought he was, but he wasn't. Only Christ is the true sovereign. Thirdly, let's move along with this in verse 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her, for, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood to me because of the circumcision. Now, there are just an incredible amount of various interpretations for this little section here. Um, when it says that the Lord met him to, to bring him to death, some even have thought that was the son. But most generally agree that, that it was the Lord seeking to kill Moses. Was it the circumcision of Gershom? Was it the circumcision of Eliezer? I read one guy that thought Zipporah had another son from another marriage and thought it was the, when it says her son in, in that section. No matter what you look at and depend on who you read, all accounts show Moses in a bad light. We'll, we'll see this. Some accounts holds Zipporah, his wife, in a bad light. And kind of the language here, they perceive that language to mean that she's disgusted with the whole uh, ceremonial rite. 
But I don't think she is. I, I would side with those who, who see her in a good light. Um, remember this, that Zipporah clearly was a Gentile. The Lord sought Moses' life. And I think part here is Moses is revealing to us his stubbornness. He stubbornly doesn't circumcise Gershom. And he doesn't do so, um, I don't know, other than the fact that he probably was stubborn. The Bible doesn't tell us and doesn't spell everything out. But it's clear to us, we know from other scriptures, that Moses, as we were looking at men should lead their homes, he was clearly the one who was responsible to circumcise his son. And yet I find this fascinating. It is Zipporah, a Gentile, who I genuinely believe at this time had trusted Yahweh. She circumcises their son because she gets the covenant promise of Abraham that, of course, uh, Moses had shared to her. And so when people look at this one text in a bad light and they see that he says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, a bridegroom of blood, I really think there's, because there's some authors that I read, that she was associating the right to Moses. And that was an act that the Jews would have humbly recognized. In this light, it's a sign of expiation to amend the guilt. In this case, it would have been for Moses for shunning his responsibility and to do the covenant signifying right. It was, in effect, atoning, and it would spare Moses' life. It also, of course, would be a sign of satisfaction, one of satisfaction. This whole, a bridegroom of blood to me, I think is more in the light that she was saying, now because blood has been shed, you have been spared. Yahweh will spare you. And so the act of circumcision, this sign, once again, is extinguishing Moses from his guilt. I really believe it's an act of honor. I think it's paid to the, to the pledges of, of God's good grace. And I did this in, in a bigger light because when you ultimately, or when we ultimately get to Exodus chapter 18, which the entire chapter deals with Jethro, I think Zipporah's dad, Jethro, gets converted to Yahweh based on the, the testimony of, their cha of the chapter. So for me, I don't, I don't see, and I'm trying to make a defense, I'm trying to tell you how I came to this conclusion. There's nothing in any portion of Scripture that has Zipporah in a bad light, and neither does it her, her dad, Jethro. And as we'll see in chapter 18, he gives them some wonderful practical instruction. She's tied to the covenant promise. Again, because she believes Yahweh. You remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And of course, Abraham circumcised his son. Let's, let's look at this. Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to give this. 
There's many sections in the New Testament you can go to to talk about circumcision, and it's always given in a spiritual light. Okay? I think this small section that we're looking at in Exodus uh, chapter 4 there, verse uh, 24 through 26, is, is a pointing forward. Zipporah, a Gentile, Moses, a Jew, the act of circumcision... Let me just say this before I read this text in Ephesians chapter 2. You can, you can read about um, circumcision in Romans chapter 2. This is interesting now that I'm thinking about this. And in Colossians chapter 2, we just read Pastor Alex preach that Sunday. Talking about the circumcision. He is not a Jew that is a Jew outwardly, but inwardly. Why? Because Christ has circumcised our hearts. Expeciation. From sin. Christ has made a man. He has satisfied God's justice and law so that God can look at us cleansed, forgiven. And it need be that that happened that way because we're guilty and God is holy. But follow along with, it, with me in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Gentiles. Zipporah. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now remember this. And we are when we're in sin and warfare to God, but because God has saved us in Christ, He now, Himself, is our peace who has made us both one. Jew and Gentile, there is one family of God. And He has broken down in His flesh, of course, Christ at the cross, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And I'll just stop there for that. Because here's the truth. Jesus is the true circumcision so that Jew and Gentile can share alike in the promises of God. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 4. We'll wrap this up. In verse 27 through 31, the Lord says to Aaron in verse 27, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Now, I think simultaneous to the burning bush experience, Yahweh has clearly communicated to Aaron, I'm going to have you hook up to your brother for his help. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron, 
all the words of the Lord with which he sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. They meet on Mount Horeb. And then verse 29 through 31, you're going to shift. And it says, then Moses, we're going to shift all the way to Egypt. God, Yahweh, is going to supply Aaron. They meet here. Of course, the mountain of God is always where God's presence is. And as you think about the burning bush experience, all along the way, Moses complains. Look back to verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, just to show how gracious the Lord is to us. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite, I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Yahweh uh, communicates to Aaron and Aaron receives it with joy. Moses in his stubbornness is receiving us and like, I don't want to do this. How important is it that we should receive the word of God even when it cuts us? With joy. It is God's grace and goodness that is leading us to repentance. In love for us. And that's why it's important that God's people meet according to God's word. Because God's presence is special here when we gather together. And the sacraments are observed. Yes, you have Christ in you. But you know, in the New Testament, it really talks about Jesus as our Lord far more often than it says, Jesus as my Lord. God especially meets with His people. Shame on those people that don't regard the weekly worship of Jesus. So, as they meet here, Moses and Aaron, you know, it's really God chastening Moses in a sense. Wow, Aaron's receiving in joy. He's kind of gathering his spiritual wits about him. Moses has complained, but look again, look at this at verse 16. It's easy to miss this if you're just reading, reading along. It says, he shall speak to, for you to the people. Yahweh's telling him, Aaron will speak to the people. He's going to be your mouth. Notice this, you shall be as God to him. You're going to communicate to him what I want him to say. You're going to be, Aaron's going to be the spokesperson, but I'm going to communicate to you. And then all of a sudden, we go from Mount Horeb to Egypt in verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Right, the leaders of all, can't bring two million people there. Pharaoh won't permit it. But they have a, they have a meeting there. Aaron is, is preaching of such. He reveals the signs that were revealed to Moses to communicate to God's people all according, don't forget this, because Yahweh tells him, it's according to my promise made to Abraham, because that's how they understood God's divine promises to them. And all the congregation, verse 31, believe, and as a result, they worship. 
Why? Why is this true for us? Because Jesus truly is the true head of the church. He's the head of the church. God's people gather on the Lord's day and Christ himself is present with us in a special way. We hear the word of God. You're probably wondering, what are the signs, Kev? I think they're this. First and foremost, it's an empty tomb. Because since the empty tomb of the early church, God's people have always gathered on that day, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Christ is risen because the tomb is empty. But the two sacraments represent the signs and the seals of God's grace, both baptism and the Eucharist. They are the signs and the seals to us that what God has promised, He is faithful to bring to pass. And church, your sin is forgiven. And God is so gracious to leave for us the sacraments to strengthen our hearts with great assurance that what God has promised will come to pass. It's true. Trust and obey Jesus. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for your word. We thank you for, we thank you for Jesus. We pray your people now, having heard your word, will believe it in worship to you. They will obey it. And Lord, assure them now as they participate in this holy meal that you've left for us, the Lord's Supper. Bless your people now, we pray, as they rise to receive the elements. We ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.